Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH Westchester Public Radio, non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. Uh, When I started transition, I was kind of in that in-between phase where I definitely couldn't go into the women's locker room but I did not at all feel safe going into the men's locker room. So, you know, finding facilities that had uh, gender-neutral changing facilities or a single-stall restroom that I could go into to change um, or, like, the pool deck change, some sort of little sliding area that I could get changed in, you know, anything to avoid those gendered spaces within a gym facility. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program or you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sydney. On this edition of Outcasting, we continue our discussion of some of the issues faced by transgender people in sports. For most people, gender is a simple matter. They are girls or boys or women or men. There is no conflict between the gender they feel they are and the biological sex of their bodies. But that's not true for everyone. Some people who are born into a girl's body feel themselves to be male, and some people born into a boy's body feel themselves to be female. Speaking very broadly, the word transgender has come into common usage to describe a wide range of people whose self-perceived gender doesn't match the sex of their bodies. Most of us have never needed a word to describe our gender identity. We just take it for granted. But just as the visibility of gay and bisexual people cause other people to start thinking of themselves as heterosexual or straight, the growing visibility of transgender people has brought us the word cisgender to describe people who are not transgender. Most of us, and most of you listening to this program, are probably cisgender, but on this edition of Outcasting, we're talking with Chris Mosier, an athlete who self-identifies as a transgender guy. Chris is a transgender advocate, educator, coach, and three-time Ironman triathlete. He's the founder of TransAthlete.com, a resource for athletes, coaches, and administrators to foster a community of inclusion. This is part two of a four-part series. In part one, Chris discussed going through an identity change without anybody to guide him, using YouTube as a tool to help his transition, and his positive feelings about identifying as a trans guy. You can listen to this series on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Travis now continues our conversation with Chris. How has being an athlete affected your transition? Before I came out and before I really understood my identity, sports was a great way for me to uh, sort of hide in some ways. Uh, in in training, say for running races, that it would, it would provide me time away from other people. Um, it was also a great way for me to sort of manipulate my body. And so in weightlifting and running, uh, that was those were two ways that I tried to make my body more stereotypically masculine, right? So like to have a little bit bigger muscles or uh, look a little more ripped, 
than I am right now, um, or than I was at that time. And I started competing in running races and I started doing really well in the female category, but I didn't identify as female. So, uh, that was the place that I had to compete, but it didn't really feel like it fit for me. And I was just sort of starting to figure that out when I started racing. And I started to experience a little bit of discrimination, a little bit of harassment when I'd be at the starting line, lined up with other women, and you know, people would look over at me and be like, Why are you here? Or, you know, are you in the wrong are you in the wrong spot? And in some ways that was like a victory for me. I was like, yeah, I passed. They thought I was a guy. And then the other ways, it was like, okay, but I still have to run this race. And people are like asking me why I'm here. So it was really kind of a conflicted moment for me. Um, and the conflict really came when I was doing well in, in my races. And being a competitive person, I really wanted to see how far up I could go. Like, can I win a race? Can I, you know, place in the top three? And then I started to wonder at what cost, because I was so uncomfortable in the other areas of my life, in work, in socializing, you know, at home, that at a certain point it stopped mattering. You know, if I, if I do well in races, it doesn't really matter because I'm so uncomfortable everywhere else that I go. So, you know, the sports piece really factored in into my decision to take testosterone because I knew that I would have to change categories. And... Mentally, I think just by the way that we're taught is that uh, the general idea is that women are not as competitive as men. And in my running race results, I, I mean, I could also see that the, the top woman would be somewhere in the 80s to 100s overall, that there were many more men who would beat the top women. And so I really wondered if I could be competitive when I, when I transitioned categories as well. So I think that was something that I really had to come to terms with of, of being sort of as, as I call it, a middle of pack athlete. And that was really disappointing for me when I decided to transition. But, um, you know, I knew that it was the right choice. And I've been pleasantly surprised that it actually, if you put in effort and hard work in training, you know, that I'm, I'm not being limited by my body. Um, I'm actually doing really well in my races competing as a man. So I've, I've kind of broken past that idea and that concept of that I'd be stuck as a transgender athlete in the middle of the pack. And in the sports in which you've participated, what kinds of policies are there pertaining to trans athletes? Well, the policy in general for running and for triathlon is that, uh, it's governed by the U.S. Anti-Doping Association, and what that basically says is that anyone who uses testosterone is using a prohibited substance. Testosterone is a performance-enhancing drug, and so anyone who uses it needs to get special exemption uh, and need to be cleared through a therapeutic use exemption in order to take it. So the second that I took testosterone, I switched categories to, uh, to compete as male. And I certainly didn't have any physical benefits after taking it once. Um, and those benefits in terms of like increased strength um, come over time you know, within the first two, first two years, I'd say. Um, so the policy was that I instantly had to change categories 
And then also that I had to get this therapeutic use exemption form filled out so that I'm approved to compete as a man. Are there any protections from disrespect or discrimination? If there are, I'm not really sure of them. Um, you know, in, in New York City, I'm protected to a certain extent. And the problem with that is is that to a certain extent, it's it's the responsibility of the person who's been attacked to prove that they were attacked, which basically entails reliving the entire event again. So a lot of it has been, you know, in cases where I have been harassed verbally, for example, um, I have really relied on folks around me to step in and intervene. And I've been fortunate enough that enough folks know me and you know, being around people who aren't afraid to say something. Um, a lot of times it's easier for a bystander, for someone else to say something than, than it was for me to stand up for myself. Um, because it, it felt really embarrassing for me to have to correct someone about my gender or to stand up for myself and say, you know, I'm a guy. Um, and other people stepped in and did that for me. Would it make a difference if there was a law that said you can't harass people for their expression or identity? I think it would in, in the way that it would be protected should it ever go to court. And I, you know, I'm all in favor of, of protective laws like that. But I think that there still is a lot that slips by. There's harassment that happens every day. There's unreported harassment that happens every day. Um, and like I said, that, that process of going through to get somebody, um, you know, the, going through the, the legal process uh, to enforce such a law is really tiring for the person who's been attacked. So, you know, I think in general, I just want people to be good people. You know, that it's just common sense laws of that we need to treat each other with love and come from a place of love and that that's not the way that people who love each other talk to each other. How do you think your experience might have been different if you were playing a different sport or a team sport? I think I definitely would have encountered more resistance had I been with a team. Uh, and triathlon is a team sport but I do it as an individual, as a part of a team. So I really have the option to opt out if I want to. And I did that a lot when I was considering transition and the early parts of transition that I would choose to work out on my own as opposed to be with my team. Um, one of the issues that I had was with swimming because I had to go to the gym and I couldn't really avoid that team sort of locker room environment um, so I had to be at a pool and I, I don't like swimming, um, probably for a lot of different reasons. One of them is because of the swimwear. Um, so for someone whose body doesn't match how they feel inside, wearing a bathing suit can be a really you know, horrendous experience. Um, so my swim training was definitely impacted because I didn't like to go to the locker room. You know, I, I had been kicked out of women's locker rooms before transition uh, when I started transition, I was kind of in that in-between phase where I definitely couldn't go into the women's locker room, but I did not at all feel safe going into the men's locker room. So, you know, finding facilities that had uh, gender-neutral changing facilities or a single stall restroom that I could go into to change um, or 
like the pool deck change, some sort of little sliding area that I could get changed in, you know, anything to avoid those gendered spaces within a gym facility. Triathlon is really interesting because cycling, uh, if you've ever seen cyclists in the, say, Tour de France or something, you wear skin-tight um, outfits. So, you know, there were there were some body things that were happening for me there as well that it's really uncomfortable to bind your breasts and wear a skin-tight outfit and work out, right? So, you know, for me to make my body match the way that I felt in my mind, uh, I was doing things like binding and then to, you know, physically exert myself was painful and and in a lot of ways. It was either that I didn't do that and I would deal with my own sort of self-consciousness about my body and, you know, how are people reading me? How are people uh, thinking about me when they see me? You know, can they, can they see certain parts of my body? Um, or I would bind and then just be, you know, sort of unable to breathe and, you know, it, it would be a, a horrible experience. Um, my, my team has been awesome. I'm a member of Empire Tri Club in New York City. I'm a coach for them as well. And I think for most of them, I was the first trans person that they had ever met. And so they were great about accepting me. But I think that's part of the nature of, of being on a team, right? Is that a team is sort of a chosen family. And we support one another in our races and in our training and in our outside lives. And people were really accepting. They didn't quite understand initially, but they did the work on their own to figure out what it meant to be trans. And they asked respectful questions. And I really opened myself up to that too, because I wanted them to understand. I, I didn't want to have to be forced away from my team just because I wanted to be myself. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about the experience of trans athletes with Chris Mosier, a transgender advocate, educator, coach, and three-time Ironman triathlete. He's the founder of transathlete.com, a resource for athletes, coaches, and administrators to foster a community of inclusion. Can you speak about the experience of trans athletes other than yourself? I really can't. But I know that they're out there. So there's just not a lot of them. What I see is that for trans men who play sports, the biggest cases that we've had or the biggest things that we've heard about have been folks who identify as trans men but have not yet taken testosterone and are playing on women's teams. And so we had a NCAA basketball player who identified as a trans guy and was playing on a women's team in Division One basketball and didn't take testosterone, so he was still able to compete on the women's team. Uh, when he started to take testosterone, he stopped competing. Um, there are a lot of cases like that where folks can compete up until a certain point, and then you know, going back to the idea of will I still be competitive when I switch categories, um, or, or will I have the opportunity to compete when I switch categories? There are a lot of obstacles in place for trans athletes, like the locker room situation. Um, so there aren't a lot of out trans men playing sports right now. Uh, we see 
a few more trans women playing sports, at least uh, in the media, like Fallon Fox, um, who's a transgender mixed martial artist. But a lot of the media attention that they get is so incredibly negative that it makes it a real challenge for any athlete to step into that. You know, knowing that if they are passing and able to compete as the gender that they feel that they are, uh, the risks of them losing that opportunity if people find out that they are transgender is incredible. Um, and for someone who loves playing sports, the idea of having that piece of your identity taken away from you is really a, a painful idea. Why do you think we don't see trans athletes positively portrayed in the media the way we do gay or lesbian athletes like Greg Louganis or Billie Jean King? I just think we're not there yet. I think that as a society, we are moving more in that direction. And I would say the last two years has been tremendous for trans visibility. And a lot of that is in part uh, from Laverne Cox and Janet Mock being such incredible advocates for, uh, for transgender folks in general and trans women of color. And, you know, they, the visibility that they have has been amazing and doing, you know, the media circuit and being able to have open and honest conversations with, you know, various folks. So in general, there's just a lack of understanding about what it means to be transgender. Are there more trans athletes participating now in sports than when you first started? I believe that there are. And I know this because I'm, I'm now in a position where people have seen me or heard my story and are contacting me through the website transathlete.com and are sharing their story with me. So I'm getting folks from uh, high school, from colleges who are asking about policies, asking to be connected to other trans folks, um, or just telling me their story about how they are playing or how they want to play or they're nervous about it. So I know that there are trans athletes out there. And, you know, part of it is when something comes across your radar as something of interest, you start to see it a lot more. And so it kind of goes back to when I didn't have the terminology for what transgender was, I didn't know any trans people. I really might have known trans people in college and maybe just didn't know that I knew them. I just didn't know about their experience. So as soon as I, you know, got started on my transition, I remember that's when Chaz Bono came out right around that time. And then little things started to pop up in the media. And all of a sudden I was hearing, you know, more and more stories about trans people. Uh, and n not a lot of them were positive when I first started coming out. It was like, oh, you're going to be a pregnant man. Right. And so like, I thought, part of my fear in telling other people that I was trans was that a lot of these stories that were popping up were really negative, but more and more now, you know, we're seeing positive stories and I'm, I'm noticing them a lot more because it's a topic of interest to me. Transphobia is the word used like homophobia to describe discrimination or bias against trans people. It can be as simple as calling someone he when she asks to be called she or using words like she male, tranny and other slang that can be offensive. 
In your life, your career as an athlete or your experience as an activist, have you run into that or perhaps more subtle kinds of transphobia? There's certainly been subtle transphobia in my experience, particularly in coming out in the maybe six months to a year after coming out, that a lot of it was based around people misidentifying me with pronouns. And, you know, I understand that transition is a transition for everyone. So just in the same way that I was transitioning uh, gender, that folks around me had to sort of transition their their mind state when they thought about me and how they identified me. And so I understood that for folks who had known me for a very long time, it would be hard for them to get on board with it. Um, but for anyone who respected me and was friends with me, I expected that that would be something that they would put effort into doing. And I experienced cases where, you know, in public situations, people would misidentify me with pronouns. And there would be people in the room who had only ever met me as he. And, you know, someone would call me she. And I think for, you know, for that first year where I still felt kind of uncertain about whether, you know, how, how were folks perceiving me? Was it the same way that I was perceiving myself? For that first year, it really negatively impacted me every time that I heard that. And it was sort of like being a video game character. And every time that someone would say she, I would lose power. And, you know, there was no way to get that back. By the end of the day, I would go home and just sort of collapse in this sort of, you know, no energy, just really defeated when that would happen. And it happened less and less over time. Um, but I, I thought that that was uh, a, a way of subtle transphobia of people not respecting my identity. Um, another case of that would be folks who have only met me as he and didn't know that I was trans. And later on, maybe after knowing me for a year, two years, as he introduced as male, never as trans, as soon as they found out that I was trans, called me she. And so that to me was very clearly transphobia because they had never, ever had a problem with pronouns before that. So that was the most impactful way I think for me. And, and I realized that it's so subtle, but language is so incredibly important. And for f folks who don't have to think about how they identify, they might not get that. They might not understand how he or she can be, you know, a make-or-break situation for someone's day, for someone's mind state. We've been talking with Chris Mosier, a transgender athlete. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris Mosier is featured in a film called Just Gender, which looks at the realities of transgender lives. Let's listen to a short excerpt. The earliest memories of many transgender people include a sense of something being disconnected between their inner sense of person and how they were told they should act as boys or girls. Most transgender people describe from a very early age feeling something wasn't right within them, something that gnawed at them all the time, 24-7. My first memory of 
not feeling the same way as people were purporting me to be was three or four. I remember being so confused that I wasn't a boy. I don't think I ever had a first experience because I always felt it was just always there from the minute I was conscious of who I was. So probably around two, three years old. Just the feeling that this was the person I was supposed to be and not the boy that I was trying to be every day to fit in with the roles that I was given every day by my family. The sense of disconnect could be as simple as a strong internal need to be playing with or engaging in activities typically associated with children of the opposite gender. My earliest memories of, of a sense of things being wrong were about the time I started kindergarten. Um, before that, um, I really didn't realize there was that much difference between men, women, male, and female, boy, girl. Um, but I got to kindergarten, and that was really the first time when things were segregated by boys do this, girls do this. And I could not understand why I couldn't do what the girls were supposed to do. I was really confused because I didn't want to be doing what the boys were doing. My first memory, really, that's most concrete is going to kindergarten on the very first day of school and having to wear a dress. Both my parents took me to school and introduced me to the kindergarten teacher and she was very grandmotherly and welcoming and kind and she said and you know here are some little boys over here and here are some little girls over here and and you know just please come in and make yourself at home and I just said okay and I went over to the little boys who were playing with some trucks and introduced myself and just settled right in. From that point forward it was clear to everyone around me basically that I really belonged more with the boys than with the girls except that I had to wear these dresses. When I think about my earliest remembrance of wanting to dress up as a woman and appear as a woman, um, what always comes to mind is that my really first remembrances had nothing to do with clothing or makeup. They had to do with my feeling that I would have been better off being a girl than a boy. When I was about five years old, I started to realize that I didn't like girl toys like Barbies or dolls. I wanted guns and, you know, G.I. Joes and, you know, stuff that boys liked. And at first it was okay. My parents were more than willing to, you know, give me stuff like that. And then they started to realize, oh, well, you probably should play more with, you know, tea sets and Cabbage Patch dolls and all this stuff. And I would turn them into war toys eventually. We've been listening to a short excerpt from the film Just Gender, which looks at the realities of transgender lives. It's aimed at schools and corporate diversity programs, among other audiences. The film is available through Kino Lorber Films. This has been part two of a four-part discussion with triathlete Chris Mosier on the issues that transgender people face in sports. You can listen to the series on our website, outcastingmedia.org. On the next edition of Outcasting, we continue our discussion with Chris Mosier as he talks about early transphobia in his life, transphobia within an LGBTQ sports community, the misconception that trans male athletes have an advantage in competition, and experiencing his newfound privilege of being a white man. 
That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Nicole S., Nicole K., Josh, David, Travis, Andrew, Michael, Jamie, Karen, Marco, Joe, and me, Sydney. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or at school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. I'm Sydney. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for part three. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.